Hello, I'm Howard Parker and welcome to Bluegrass Stories. In 1975, Chicago banjo player Greg Cahill founded Special Consensus, otherwise known to fans and friends as Special C. 34 years later, Special C is still on the road and making terrific music. In 2018, they walked away with two IBMA awards and a Grammy nomination. Katie Daly sits down with Greg Cahill and talks Chicago bluegrass, banjos, what it's like to have a band on the road for 34 years, and what's all this about his sudden uptick in popularity. Here's Katie with Greg Cahill. Well, I wanted to start by asking you a question because people always seem surprised that there's bluegrass in Washington. And then you realize bluegrass is very strong in Boston and you know all these places you don't think of. Uh, I imagine in our case it was because southerners were coming to Washington to get jobs. But uh, how did bluegrass start flourishing in Chicago? Well, that's, it is the same thing. Everybody's like bluegrass in Chicago. And I'll tell you a side story about that. But um, actually the same story. People were coming to Chicago for jobs after the war. But what people don't realize is that there was such a country community there that uh, this guy came uh, from down from down south and, and started the WLS Barn Dance, right? And WL, it was Sears, Roebuck and Company, world's largest store was WLS. And uh, the interesting thing is I used to listen to that when I was a kid like in the late 50s and 60s and then it went to rock and roll format so I still listened to that through the 60s when I was in school, high school you know grammar school high school and uh, and it's still there still playing rock and roll WLS mm. you know changed formats many times to keep up with the times but uh, the WLS barn dance featured well they would bring the country stars uh, to Chicago and actually that's how Homer and Jethro ended up in Chicago. Really? Yeah, and Jethro told this story once. Uh, we, I lived about three blocks from Jethro for about 18 years before he passed. I was so lucky, up in Evanston, Illinois. So Homer, uh, Evans, Jethro lived up in Evanston, which was way north of the city. Homer lived south because they wanted to have a good distance from each other when they were home so they could stay friends and keep doing their thing, which they did. But, uh, yeah, Jethro at one point said, yeah, well, I, I um, went, there was a guy, Jimmy Petrullo was the head of the musicians union there, and now there's the big Petrullo band shell down by the lake in Chicago, and he said, yeah, and he was real eccentric, he would wear gloves, white gloves, he was worried about germs, <laughs> and, you know, um, but uh, he really wanted Homer and Jethro, and this was after their run in Vegas, and, um, and so he called, called him in, you know, had him come in, and Jethro did. And he, he said, man, I want you on the barn dance, you know. This is, we, we want you to be featured. And he said, well, I'd love to do it, you know. We really would love to do it. But uh, we got this contract, you know. We're supposed to play Vegas, you know. They were just, we were going to have a sit-down gig there and all that. And he said, ah, well, um, but you want to do that? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we'd love to be on the barn dance. That's our thing, you know. And so he said, you got the contract with you? He said, yeah. He said, let me see it. And he looks at it and he goes, Okay, you start next Friday. And that's how Jethro and Homer ended up <laughs> on the Chicago Barn Dance. Um, and then, uh, and he, you know, of course, it, it, was, it was sad because uh, 
they were playing a gig and they were supposed to play a gig and Jethro was there and Homer wasn't showing up and he's looking at it and finally Jethro just started doing the gig by himself and that's how he started it and what had happened is uh, Homer got up that day walked out the door to go to the gig with his guitar and fell down the stairs he just had a heart attack and died just oh like my gosh so, yeah it was terrible um, but so uh, anyway the barn dance is Bob Atcher, who later became the mayor of one of the suburbs, Schaumburg, Illinois, and uh, we got to I got to play with him a little bit. And uh, so anyway, they had a massive following at the 12th Street Theater, 12th Avenue, 12th Street, and uh, people would line up on Friday and Saturday. I mean blocks, and I mean you know it gets real cold in Chicago in the winter, and that did not deter them. So the guy's name, yeah, was George D. Hay. Ah. Then he went to Nashville ah. and started the Grand Ole Opry. So the barn dance was there first, and it was huge. And right. So there's this huge following still, you know, for country music, and there's still country bars. Now, you said when you were a little kid and you were listening, were you listening under the covers so your parents didn't know, or were your parents <laughs> no. enthusiastic about your well, following that music? They they didn't really know, but it wasn't because I was keeping it from them. It was just they, uh, they were real into Dixieland music. Ah. And I think that's how I got the banjo in my ears you mm-hmm. know i would go to sleep they'd have eddie peabody on the on the stereo you know and uh the combination of that my granddad was a fabulous harmonica player he worked for railway express and uh so i started playing the harmonica when i was like five or six uh, i'd stay with my grandparents my sisters and i in my one sister my other sister was too young but we'd stay for a week or two in the summer with grandma and grandpa you know and um, so he would uh, give me his old harmonica every Christmas. My grandmother would give him a new harmonica. And so he would give me the old one. And then so we'd sit at night when he'd come home from work and he'd play a tune and show me Turkey in the Straw and, I mean, Oh Susanna and all that stuff. And I'd sit there, I'd get up the next morning, and I'd just sit there literally all day trying to figure out how to play it. And then he'd come home from work, well, how'd you do? And, Okay, and so on. What I didn't know is the reason he was giving me the old harmonica is because usually he had played it so much that at least one of the reeds was blown out. So I'd be like, I can't get it to sound like you, Gramps. <laughs> and so, anyway. <laughs> and so then, uh, and then um, you know, we lived on the south side of Chicago, so uh, I started... My mom was a great piano player, and um, her mother was a great... And, uh, her dad uh, was was killed at a fairly young age, and he worked for the railroad, and he was killed in a railroad accident. Um, so my mom raised or my mother's mother, the grandmother I never met, raised my mom and her sister by playing the piano for silent movies, and then by giving piano lessons. You know, Tom Minty's mother did too. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know that. No, well, I'll be there. Well. Uh, so I started uh, playing the accordion when I was about six or seven. And, you know, it is true, yeah. I, I learned how to read music. I played it for about eight years, and I liked it, but I, I, was, I just liked the swingy stuff more or whatever. And, and it wasn't until I was getting out of high school that I uh, had a friend who showed up at a picnic in senior year with a banjo. And, and I'd been hearing the tenor banjo all the time from, from the Dixieland stuff. And, and in family gatherings, I mean, everybody was around the piano. My dad sang in the church choir, and my mom played the piano, and she was a great honky-tonk player, and playing all the old standards, you know. Um, and uh, so then I started playing the accordion and did that. But when I heard the banjo, 
then I got way into you know Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary right yep. that era, um, and um, then uh, you know when what's the first bluegrass you remember hearing? That's what I'm trying to remember. I think I mean the thing that really caught my ear, of course, was. Uh, the, the ballad of Jed Clampett, right, on TV, when that first came around. And then, you know, I, of course, had to see Bonnie and Clyde just because I knew what was up then. And, and then uh, when I was in college, this guy who I ended up being in a folk trio with, a, a guy and a, and, a, and a woman, a girl, um, the three of us, and we would make our spending money playing uh, folk music at Shakey's Pizza Parlors, you know. But I was so into the Kingston Trio, I got the long neck banjo, you know, and that's that's what I was doing. Dave Gard was my hero. Um, but then when I really, the guy in the folk group with me, P.K. Frawley, came in and we listened to a re one Saturday afternoon, and, the, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how many people are playing that banjo, <laughs> you know, and it was it was the Foggy Mountain Banjo album. Uh, and so that, that did it. I had to figure that out. Uh, well, we can cut the story out, but... Uh, Pete Kaikadal went to... Let me ask you one thing. How hot are you? I'm hearing a lot of noise. It would be nice to cut the noise down, but if you're hot... I don't I'll know. just roll up my sleeves. That's okay. Okay. If it's okay with you. Yep. Um, Pete Kaikadal went to high school with Warren Beatty. Oh, did he really? Who was the that. director of yeah. Dottie and Claude. Yeah. And they had, you know, some, I guess, show and tell... In, in school, it was high school, and Pete took his banjo in and played Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And after class, Warren Beatty said, "Can you come and play that for me again and tell no me kidding. more about that song?" I'll be darned. No. So kidding. that's probably where Warren Beatty got that. From that the movie. is really interesting. Yeah. Man, isn't it crazy? All these little connects that go so far. And, and then, never, and the then how many people rippled out, you yeah. know, from Warren Beatty liking that? So Pete's fault. Yep. It's all Pete's it's fault. It's all Pete's fault. Dang him. That's right. Well, so, okay, now we've got you uh, with the harmonica and the accordion and the banjo. Don't tell me that the bagpipes are next. <laughs> yeah, I need to make even more money, yeah. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, bagpipes are big in Chicago because... Because uh, of Polish? Uh, no. Scottish? Irish at all the all the big oh, at the the funerals police? and the police department. Oh, right, right. They have the whole bagpipe uh, unit. That, and on St. Patrick's Day, the whole city is crazy, and these guys play about 50 different places around the city, but it, it's, they're big time, and they're great. We've played some shows where, uh, you know, traditional music shows, well, uh, they'll have mariachi band and us as a bluegrass band and the bagpipes, and, and, and in fact, we played at Orchestra Hall uh, only a few years ago with, um, it was a program that was featuring the roots music that ended up in Chicago. And so they had some great blues players, and Celtic, Liz Carroll, and, and all these great, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Moore, uh, Williams, and just great players in each kind, and we were the bluegrass band for that. So there's a, there's a huge roots music connect as well in Chicago, you know, and of course the Old Town School of Folk Music has been over, over 50 years now. And, right. Um, yeah, that, uh, well, when I, and when I first got into the, banjo with the folk stuff then I got into Pete Seeger so that was the long neck and the and the 12 string guitar I had that and the, and all the protest songs you know and and then and then I had a uh, 
college, went into the Army for a couple of years and came back, and then I was really seriously, I was going to graduate school, and I had a wife and a son, but I was determined to learn how to play that banjo, you know. All my waking hours, I would mm-hmm. sit and play and play and play and play. So, so uh, your band is uh, Special Consensus, and there's a famous T-shirt that it has all the members of the mm-hmm. band, you know, like it would say, guitar, mm-hmm. and it would list and you're the only banjo player that ever played with a band. I'm, I'm all alone at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's been how many years? This is uh, 44, so 2020. You know, we started actually as friends um, who met at the University of Chicago Folk Festival, which had been going for years and years, and is still going. And it's always in late January or February, early February. And we'd all go to see the folk. I mean, I saw so many, I saw the Pinnacle Boys, and I saw Bell Reed, and I saw, I mean, they would go for the really traditional sounds, and it was awesome. But then we'd all go out into the hallway, and you'd hear somebody playing a mandolin or a guitar or a banjo, and so we started hooking up, and we'd, we'd meet, you know, uh, for a couple of days, we'd, okay, Saturday at 2 or Sunday right after this show or whatever, and, and uh so a bunch of us got together and we were just playing for fun and then it was well let's you know we could let's get serious about it. let's try to have a band and we were trying to learn the bluegrass music you know uh, as we went along um, and that was probably seventy three but it wasn't until in the middle of seventy four the bass player Mark Edelson and I decided you know we'd really like to give this a go just where we could uh, make enough by giving lessons. Mark had had uh, played blues harp with um, Hound Dog Taylor, and uh, so he was learning the acoustic bass, which is what he always wanted to play. And he went on to go to graduate school and an MBA and worked and did all kinds of stuff. And he's back to playing bass as of about 15 years ago. But. Um, and Where, did, you, did you hold down a day job at that time? I did. I had finished graduate school and I was a social worker. I got my master's in social work. So I was working with kids actually, trying to keep kids not necessarily from not, you know, of course there was marijuana around and, and then there was some bad stuff, bad pills and what that, and we were just trying to counsel kids like, look, you know, first of all, it's physically dangerous and we, we started a thing called the dope sheet and, and it convinced, I was the community organizer, so we had these guys at Cyril Labs agreed to take the chance of analyzing drugs that were found on the street so you could say, hey, there were drugs over at Morse Avenue Beach and they have PCP in them and if you take it you're going to get real sick and you might die. Don't do this. And that's the kind of thing. We're just trying to have information. I dealt with the police and said, you know, when you find these kids ODing or freaked out, don't take them to jail, take them to the hospital, that kind of thing. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. but. I literally, in fact, I was just saying to the guys, I used to, I had to fly to Rockville, Maryland a few times for writing grants, you know, we were getting federal money for this. It was called alternatives, which meant alternatives to drug abuse. Not necessarily use, but abuse. But I'd be sitting in the meeting, same thing, doing the Earl, you know, trying to figure the three-finger. How did he really play that on the intro to Blue Ridge Kevin Hall? No one has ever really figured out what Earl did. Yeah, I know. and They and may be able to play it, but it's exactly right. the magic How is missing did, that's always. Right. It was all the magic. Right. And so that's when I decided, the bass player and I decided, and that was in 75, we said, okay, we're going to give this a go. The other guys, one was 
about to finish his dissertation and needed to do that, and one guy was finishing his master's degree, so they stayed. We got other guys, and that was the official beginning of Special C as a as a touring, full time. Well, it's band. interesting that you were working with kids because uh, you went on to do a lot of work with kids, uh, taking bluegrass into the schools, mm -hmm. and you had a second uh, program. What was it? It was called the Traditional Music, uh, Traditional American Music right. Program, the TAM program, and um, yeah, well, part of working with kids. Uh, for this uh, alternatives place, which is still there actually, um, was we try to do outreach and just try to, and, and so we started a paid rent on an extra building that we for a drop-in center, and then the kids who would hang out there, whose parents might work and they were alone during the day and after school, and they're high school kids and you know at-risk teenagers, and so we try to everybody. Um, on the staff, they're all MSWs, PhDs. On the fact that we all had long hair, and you know, and I don't know. It was it was the times, um, and so I would give free banjo lessons on Thursday nights. Oh. and it was astounding to me how how kids who knew nothing about bluegrass or anything but just liked the sound of an instrument or wanted to play an instrument or whatever, and that's what prompted me to think, you know, wow, when kids really are exposed to this they really do like it they appreciate it and at the same time I'd have uh, teacher friends in the neighborhood who would say hey could you just stop by my school you know uh, one time just for a half hour just show the kids the banjo they've never seen something like that maybe and, and so I would do that and then and in fact part of that was when Chris Jones was in the band in the early 80s and, and then it, the, the kids would just love it so I'd ask Chris, so Chris and I would go in, and then pretty soon we'd bring the whole band, and then it was like, so I went to the library and researched it and drew up this study guide for teachers, and one thing led to another, and and then that was what we used as a basis for the thing with the IBMA, Nancy Cardwell and right. I. The International Bluegrass Music Association, and uh, now a lot of bands are still going into schools. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know the funding isn't there anymore, unfortunately, because That's too bad. before the you know between state and federal and uh, and even local PTAs and um, we used to tell people uh, who wanted to know how do you make these connects and it was uh, the one thing that always stuck with me was uh, as you drive into a town they always have the sign with all the you know the Lions Club and the whatever and the whatever the community groups and just contact them because they're usually wanting to do something in the community and. This was a great thing, mm -hmm. and uh, that was sort of a formula then. So they would sponsor having a band come to the the high school or the or the grammar school or the the, the band class or the choir class of the high school, you know, stuff like that. And it was very successful. There was a time when we were doing. I remember um, when Gabrielle Gray was still the director of uh, the museum. We went uh, and spent a week in Louisville, going to four or five schools a day. Wow. And we just so that's a lot of kids, you know, and and they and they'd send us these letters, and I still have bags of these letters from the students, you know. Oh, I like the guitar the best because it's cool, or I like the mandolin because how can you get all that sound out of this little instrument? And and uh, boy, the banjo's loud, isn't it? And, you know, <laughs> but my, it was great, you know. When my son was in uh, nursery school, um, the uh, Country Gazette used to come and stay oh, at our yeah. house, 
so Alan says, do you think the school would like us to come up and, and play a, you know, a little set for them or something? And I asked, and it was kind of a snooty school. And uh, I, they were up there and they were getting ready to play and this woman came in and uh, I mean, she looked like she had been sent by a casting director oh. because she almost were wearing the foxtails, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff. And she was like looking at them and asking the teachers about, you know, and I thought, oh gosh, she's going to complain. They pointed at me and she came over. She said, oh my God, is that Alan Monday? Oh, no kidding. <laughs> I was, that's great. I was really surprised. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, those glances, she was, that wasn't negative. It, no, was, it was, I can't, I can't believe, believe that guy right is there. here. Oh, that's so really cool. it's, it's around more than, more than you know. But it's interesting that being a, um, community organizer has then helped spread bluegrass these all these things with you have have connected to other things you t teach at a lot of uh banjo camps mm -hmm. i do and i room with alan oftentimes oh you too. do We're great buddies <laughs> he yeah. is a good guy he's a great guy and i know you know that but uh when you over the years you're not just making a living a special consensus you have to figure out ways for more income to come in, and and, the, and these banjo camps are helpful. You spend a lot of time in Ireland. Right, right, we do. Well, yeah, um, back again, this would probably be about the 80s. <clears throat> Chicago was a huge jingle house, right, commercials. So they had some kind of system where oftentimes they would actually um, maybe film the video in New York City and then Chicago would be where they'd put the soundtrack to a lot of these videos and then they would send them to LA and put it all together. Mm -hmm. Now um, by the late 80s and into the 90s it was the jingles houses were still there but they started going away because they started moving everything to LA. It's like, right. Why don't we just do it all here? But um, <clears throat> there was a time when we would go in and, and do a session and get paid really well through the union. But I had to be in the union, and that's when I joined the union was because of doing commercials, you know, radio and TV soundtracks, what have you. And, do do uh, you remember any of the... You know, it's interesting because I just cleared out a drawer. My wife is always like, oh my gosh, you have so much stuff here. <laughs> so I was clearing out uh, some old income tax uh, stuff from the 80s that I found in a drawer and I couldn't believe how many I was looking and that it ranged from I didn't realize how many companies we had worked for but it was uh, you know we would do uh, General Mills or Hamburger Helper or Budweiser or Oil Express when they first started um, McDonald's a bunch of different McDonald's stuff and this all started when Rick that uh, we were somewhere and this guy who had hired me that long ago came up and started talking and Rick overheard it because um, they, they would do elaborate commercials so I got called by this guy to go in and play banjo on a Captain Crunch commercial okay. and so we became the Captain Crunch band but it was like there were probably ten musicians from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Howard Levy was playing piano and a little harmonica and um, I think Don Sternberg yeah was playing mandolin and uh, with this classical group, and, and then we did a bunch of them for Captain Crunch cereal, you know, and uh, it was, and as my wife says, you know, those were the days <sighs> we'd be panicking about, ah, the rent is due, or 
something would be due and we'd be panicked and but and then in in the mail would come this check for 50 bucks because they did what they called a reuse oh so you you might have done the commercial and then a year two years even three years later you get a check and say a six-week reuse so they might have completely changed the video but they wanted to keep the same soundtrack so people could would recognize mm -hmm. it and uh, so we get that little check as royalties oh thank god you know <laughs> so but it's always a str you have to be really innovative to come up with ways to supplement the bluegrass you do well that's and then with the school program it was like you know we should start charging for this because we're spending a lot of time at this and that and then we started figuring out rates and what we would do was um, when we'd uh, especially for the uh, like the arts councils uh, that would hire us um, we would offer them the opportunity for a couple hundred dollars or whatever to have us go into a school in the afternoon and uh, so it was a win-win you know we could make a few extra bucks and uh, and we could promote the music with the, the high school kids you know and we'd always say now nah, if you come tonight you know come and say hi to us at the record table and bring your and parents bring we'd love to meet you <laughs> yeah but we, we left that part out oh. but yeah but <laughs> but they'd always come up yeah you're at my school today and blah, blah, blah. so um yeah and given lessons i think i've been teaching at the old town school since about 1973 74 wow. i used to teach a lot and then there's our tour schedule now it's like one day a month i go in and just teach our lessons for nine hours, ten hours, and um, huh. but just to keep that connect, you know, with the school, right. support the school. So you said you've been in, uh, as a band almost forty plus years. It'll be forty-five years next year, twenty twenty. Yeah, and every five years we have a like a reunion concert right. at the Old Town School, and that's when we do those T-shirts. And every five years, it gets. I, I've been like very fortunate that the guys in the band now have all been there for Nick, the mandolin player. Nick Dumas is the newest guy, and he's been four years now. And by the time we do it, he'll be five years. But Rick is going on ten years. I can't believe that. Because he was our mandolin player for six. Right. And then uh, Dan is six years. So, but I was uh, used to joke about that. That uh, you know. We can't have much more turnover. Or the T-shirt's going to have to be a night shirt because it's <laughs> longer, you know. Well, uh, I, I don't know how to say this, but when did you win your first IBMA award? What year for the band? Thirty-eight years. Yeah. And then there's Grammy nominations and more yeah. IBMA nominations yeah. and awards and stuff. What? happened after 38 years that you clicked and everybody it was was it magic had you changed your style what is it that all of a sudden you were winning these and Grammy nominations it was a combination of many things many variables okay um, I said there was another part of a story when we started talking um, which was when we were talking about bluegrass in Chicago mm -hmm. <clears throat> When I first met Sonny Osborne, uh, it was the late 70s, because we used to open for them a lot at the Old Town School of Folk Music that just had a small stage, and they could only fit maybe 150 people at the most, maybe 200. But I saw, I even saw Ernest Tubb there. Uh, and they, uh, Bill Monroe would come almost every year, and the Osborne brothers, and Jim and Jesse, all the first generation people came to do a show there. <clears throat> and Sonny said, you know, I know you guys are working at it, and this is great, but, you know, if you're not from the South, you just can't play bluegrass music. 
that's it. So I'm just warning you, it's going to be hard. And uh, and I think that concept has been in people's minds for so long that I mean we we couldn't get on the festival scene, and it was I mean it it wasn't just because you know of course we weren't always we we were not, we were learning we weren't great but we just wanted to play and 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 I know there's a lot of bands in that position right now you know um but there really was a stigma being from Chicago and there were a lot of promoters especially from down south that just were like no we don't need a band from Chicago sorry you know we got plenty of great players from around here and great bands and so on so that was part of it um and part of it was you know after 35, 38 years, some of the people who had been in the band, you know, um, people started taking notice to some of these players, you know, like Chris and like Josh in the 90s, but like uh, uh, Mitch Corbin, uh, who's great buds with uh, uh, Byron Berline and a fabulous player. I think he was, he and Mark O'Connor for years and years were the only... Um, people who went to the Winfield Festival and won both guitar and mandolin the same year. Um, and it, it just goes on and on. Uh, so I think it was, you know, people just started becoming aware and our recordings were getting a little better because we were getting a little better. And the, the biggest thing, especially with the Grammys, was Allison Brown. Um, Pine Castle Records kind of folded overnight and Tom Briggs had a bad fall and his son was thinking he just wasn't going to make it or at least wasn't going to be able to keep the record company going and basically shut it down overnight and we had an album in the can right then wow and i was like oh my god i don't know what i'm gonna do and i was friends with allison and called her and said allison uh and allison is the, allison oh, the owner of uh compass, compass records at right. dashville she and her husband gary west and uh she said well yeah i think we could work something out and over months of going back and forth we did and um so they released that recording, which um, became known as, uh, let's see... Scratch Gravel Road? No, it was before that. They actually reached, uh, did a recording, it was called 35, because of our 35-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And uh, we worked together well, just trying to figure out, but we, it was already recorded. So um, when I signed with Compass... I was so happy, you know, and thankful. And uh, and our deal was, Allison said, well, you know, we'd really like you to record in our studio, Compass Record Studio, because it's, it's right there. And I had been recording with Brent Truitt for years, and we're best buds, you know, and I said, oh, man, I'm so we worked so well together. He said, well, yeah, but let's give this a try. And I said, okay, then if we do that, would you produce? And she, <laughs> she said, whoa. She was still touring a little more uh, then, and said, well... Okay, and uh, that really, that really changed the direction. So before we would go into the studio and be prepared and you know have our songs together and our arrangements and and then just try to nail it. Well, with Allison, she is just a f so gifted in so many ways, and she's a phenomenal producer. She just has great ideas and and uh, the biggest concept that we'd sit around the table with each song. And she kind of considers each song like the recording. So there are, it's like, okay, we're not going to do our few best songs and then have some songs we really like, and then if we don't have enough space, we're going to put this one in or that. There are no filler songs. Every song, we're going to really think about how can we make this song sound the best. And, 
and uh, we spend time deciding uh, who's going to sing what part, uh, do different uh, trials of different people singing the different parts, who's going to sing lead, the harmony, whatever, who's going to play, uh, who's going to kick it off, are we going to have uh, harmony instrumental parts, are we going to, whatever, and, and really, really think about it. And over the time, yeah, so the first one that she actually produced was Scratch Gravel Road, and it was nominated for a Grammy, and we about dropped our teeth, you know, like, oh my <laughs> God, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> she was pretty surprised, too, you know. In <laughs> um, that one, you know, for example, uh, so what I'm saying is we, we go in and we kind of know what songs we want to do, and we have ideas and thoughts, but we don't do anything until we sit together at the table and mm-hmm. try to brainstorm over it. And uh, it's it'd be like with an advertising company where people brainstorm what's going to be our thing here for this product, and that's what we do with each song. Wow! And uh, it takes a lot of time, but it's 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 worth it, you know. Obviously, right. the payoff so, is great. So for that song, we we were recording, and the last song we recorded was the title song "Scratch Go Road" because we liked it. But there was one part we wanted to, Becky to change. Becky Buller wrote it. And it came down to, look, this is our last day of recording in the studio. We've got to start making, we've got to do it. So we went in and recorded the track while she was rewriting, calling in. How about this for this? For, how about this? <laughs> Trying to get the last line of the chorus the way we wanted it and the way she wanted it. And, uh, and so she was literally phoning it in as we were recording the instrumental tracks. And, uh, and lo and behold, it's the title cut to the first Grammy nomination we ever got. So... And then from then on, I mean, that was our concept. I had a, you probably know Rick Spratt, who's been around IBMA a lot, and he had been, he was just a friend, uh, we met him years ago, and he was a great supporter of bluegrass music, and, and he kept saying to me, you know, you ought to think about a John Denver recording. People love John Denver, and if you could do that bluegrass style, that would be really cool. And just had that in the back of my mind and so after Scratch Grab a Row I was like well now what do we do now we got this Grammy nominated we've got to really come up with something and I thought now's the time for that and I talked to Alice and she was like great idea blah 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 and then it was right around the anniversary of Circle Being Broken album so uh, we were like well she was you know maybe we could just get a bunch of you people from Nashville or friends and kind of make this kind of a little mini version of that as mm-hmm. a tip of the hat to that and do something different with this material that I don't think there's anybody on the planet that hasn't heard at least one John Denver song. Right. Like. And so uh, so that's what we did. That's when we did that and brought friends in and made it a collaborative effort. And, <clears throat> and that won a couple of uh, IBMA awards and uh, and then um, Long I Ride, you know. That's a great one. That one uh, and that the title cut written by Robbie Folks, who was a special sea boy for about <clears throat> four and a half years, you know, and he's he's doing great now. Uh, alt country or well, I don't know what you would call it, Americana music. But. So it pays to change it up or at least experiment with changing it up. You think mm-hmm. everything's going fine and then mm-hmm. you know, a little difference. Well, you were also president of IBMA, so you know the inner workings of the organization and how helpful they are to musicians and um do you have any thoughts about the direction of the music now, or...? Yeah, well, yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's great to let it grow, okay, and let the tent expand. Um, 
as you know, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people were all worried that there wasn't going to be traditional bluegrass music. But, I mean, look at some of the bands now, you know. Uh, look at the Poe Ramblin' Boys, you know, and, and just some of the other real traditional bands. They're great guys, people in these bands and preserving that tradition and that's their thing and then you have all the you've got mile 12 like wow you know and, and Danny Paisley doing his thing and Junior Sisk who kind of rides the line so you've got all these different bands the Hen House Prowlers from Chicago and they're doing tons of school programs now they become international ambassadors and they go to different countries and state department grants and go to the schools as well as perform with musicians from those countries and so I think you know, I think we just need to, to let it grow uh, and not worry anymore, and I don't think we have to. It's pretty clear that, that you're, you're going to have all different types of the music, um, and I think it's healthy because um, I know, you know, like when poor Ramblin' Boys, you know, now they're on Rounder Records and writing their own songs, but that still sound like Little Girl of Mine in Tennessee or something like that, you know, and... Um, Proving, I think that if you just let it grow, in however way, shape, or form that happens, it's it's going to be great. And uh, and now you have what they call the jam bands and the jam band festivals, and well, that's that's a great thing because there are a lot of young people and a lot of older people now that you know can relate to that. And mm -hmm. I think uh, I think we're in good shape. And social media and and YouTube has been so great for the music because now you can have a you know, when I was learning in Chicago, geez, I hit Richard Hood, he showed me, a, I took a couple of lessons with him, and he took me to some of the festivals, and and uh, and then I was just slowing down and dropping the needle, you know, slowing 33 and a third down to 16, dropped the needle 8,000 times to see if Earl hit the fourth fret of the third string or the second string open, you know? Right. And it took forever. And now you can now slow you can, down YouTube. Yeah. And you can see the person doing it, and you can take Skype. I give Skype lessons. A lot of people do. You know, you can do all this stuff where, where as before, somebody in some of these, what we might call non-bluegrass communities uh, or areas, uh, were just how are they going to learn? Now anybody can, can right. learn that. And I think, and look at how great some of these young people are singing and playing. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the biggest difference from when I got involved in bluegrass and now is the involvement of women and mm -hmm. technology. Yeah, well, there you go. You don't even have to go in a studio. You can just record it and yeah. email it in and yeah, yeah, don't have yeah. to be in the same room. Or And, and the women thing is huge, you know. Um, I think it's great. It's fabulous. That it's, it's like these great musicians were always there, and now finally the door, it, it, you know, I don't know. It's it's like when you ask me what happened after 38 years we get an award. Well, what happened? Why did it take that long? But now finally, people are like, "Holy cow!" But you know that was part of that old mentality. You know, you can't have women singing this right because they got to do it in the wrong key. You know, <laughs> and stuff like that. You right. Know? So now all that, thank goodness, uh, has changed, and uh, and the community is thriving. I think, and and I think the Ivy May what what a great thing that they have done with um, the event, the annual event in Raleigh. And how great is Raleigh to embrace it and the event uh, now, you know, everybody can go, it's it's free and that's going to bring in more people and right. so on and so forth. R so. Raleigh has really been terrific, I think. They've been great. Well, quickly, because I know you have to get to a sound mm -hmm. check, uh, what's next for oh. uh, Special C? 
Well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to Nashville next week. We're playing the station in on Saturday, and I'll be having a meeting with Allison and Gary, and that's what we're going to talk about, try to think about uh, what we can do to have some kind of recording released in uh, 2020, which is the 45-year anniversary of the band. And I've already got, uh, I think it's, what is it, October 24th of 2020, something like that, at the Old Town School to have our our five-year sort of reunion and what we do at those shows is uh, all the former members are invited of course to come and I just we figured it out again we counted the names on the t-shirt last night and so Nick is number 47 in the band but you know after 45 years uh, Bill Monroe must have had 547 you know so it's not terrible I've I've heard interesting stories from former bluegrass boys who said They were playing, you know, uh, a daily or an early morning Saturday radio show, and the phone would ring, and the engineer would come in and say, Bill Monroe's on the phone for the banjo player. <laughs> and when can you go on the road with us or meet oh, us at yeah. East and Main Street? And they'd go out there and he'd say, play such and such. And the kid would play it, and he'd say, well, when can you leave? Because we have to be in yeah. Chicago in an hour. And that's how they were auditioned they and hired. I remember Bob Black talking about that when he went in. He said he went into Bill's office and the radio was on. And Bill just talked to him a little bit, said this and that. He said, okay, uh, let me uh, let me hear you play uh, Bluegrass Breakdown. And Bob, okay. So he's ready. And Bill's doing paperwork. And I said, well, go ahead and play. He said, oh, yeah, well, the, the radio's on. He said, I know. <laughs> Because he wanted to see how he'd do, you know, right. play with the distraction, and, and, and he, got, he got the job. <laughs> but that was interesting, I thought, you know. Well, remind us again of your website and... Okay, sure. It's, uh, it's just specialc.com is the website, and we're, of course, on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, you can find us pretty easily. And you can get your records uh, either at your website or off Compass? Right. Okay. Right. And probably Amazon, too, I think, and they're all over. Yeah, yeah. And that was Katie Daly and Greg Cahill. For more about Greg and the band, on the web, go to www.specialc.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud and is available on the web at katydaily.com, bluegrassstories.com. It's also available through Facebook, iTunes Music, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for our next podcast.